0: Hey, this is Randy Robinson, and I'm the pastor of Everyday Church. Thanks so much for joining us today. We hope this podcast encourages you, stretches your faith, and helps lead you into a growing relationship with Jesus. Let's do it. Today is week four of the Jesus Above All series. And my prayer is that we are all being challenged to take a deep look at our relationship with Jesus. Is he truly above all in our lives? And for those who have been at this Christian thing for a while, um, did you just set it and forget it? Have we put the car on cruise control, so to speak? Are we just coasting through our spiritual lives? Are we on autopilot? In other words, are we just going through the motions? You know, through this series, we've talked about DTR conversations, which stands for define the relationship. And there comes a time in our relationships where the commitment level has to be defined. Right? Are we acquaintances? Are we colleagues? Are we casual friends? Are we good friends? Maybe even BFFs? I don't know. You ever commit too soon to a relationship? Like you think this person is going to be your new bestie? And then after a few times of hanging out, you're like, oh, what have I done? You're like, I gave them my phone number. This is bad. But you don't know how to back the truck up. We've all been there. Some of you are in it right now. You're like, yep, I'm trying to get a new phone number right now. This person is. Well, he we pro- focused pretty heavily on a DTR or define the relationship conversation that Jesus had with his disciples in Matthew chapter 16. When he asked him point blank, who do you say that I am? Others thought he was a prophet that had come back to life, or Elijah, or John the Baptist. But Jesus wanted to know who the disciples believed that he was. And we said that we all have to answer this same question. Who is Jesus to you? Is he just a man who lived a couple thousand years ago? Just a good moral teacher? Was he just a prophet? I mean, he not only claimed to be the son of the living God, he claimed that he was God. That's a pretty big deal. Because there's really no in-between. I think C.S. Lewis, his famous quote from his book, Mere Christianity, sums it up when he says, quote, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. That I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us and he did not intend to. In other words, either Jesus is God or he was crazy. He could not have simply been a good moral teacher because you cannot be a good moral teacher and also be a liar. And so we have to answer the same questions that the disciples were asked. For some in the room, like you're literally grappling with this question. You're in the middle of deciding whether Jesus was the son of God or not. You're not sure you're trying to figure it out. For others of you, you're convinced that Jesus was and is who he said he was. That's not the question for you. I fall into that category. And so the question is not, is Jesus God? The question is, what's my commitment level going to be? So as we've talked about quite extensively the past two weeks, we have to decide if we're going to be followers or just fans, using the language from kyle Idleman in his book not a fan are we just going to be spectators and the problem is the teaching of jesus doesn't allow for such options following jesus isn't a la carte you ever been to a restaurant where there's a no substitution policy rule on the menu like you want the steak but it comes with the baked potato and asparagus and you'd like to trade the asparagus for mashed potatoes instead i know that's double potatoes but one of them's baked so it's fine <laughs> But since there's a no-substitution policy, you can't trade. But that's how we come to Jesus. But we don't get to trade out the parts that we don't particularly care for. Oh, I'll take Jesus with a side of joy and happiness, but I'd like to trade having to forgive others when they do me wrong for another side of joy and happiness. I'm sorry, sir, there are no substitutions allowed. All right, let's go back to the interaction that Jesus was having with his disciples when he asked them, who do you say I am? Peter speaks up and says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus is like, you're right, but you didn't come to this knowledge on your own. Your father in heaven revealed this to you. You almost get the vibe that Jesus was surprised when Peter was speaking. And this interaction continues. Verse 21, Matthew chapter 16. We'll read from there. I've been summarizing previous up to this point. Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it. Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. I mean, this whole interaction is kind of funny. right? This is... This is mere moments after Jesus had just commended commended Peter for saying that he was the Messiah, the son of the living God. And then he turns right around and gets rebuked by Jesus when Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, you're a stumbling block to me. Verse 24. And then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And when Jesus says, come after me, part of the literal meaning of this phrase is to go after. The implication is similar to a romantic pursuit. So in other words, to passionately pursue someone that you love. In May of 2011, I was a single dad, two small kids, serving as a youth and worship pastor in Palatka, Florida. And our youth group was passionate about missions and we were doing everything that we could to raise money for missionaries. And so over Memorial Day weekend of that year, we had a booth selling soda and snow cones and the famous Blue Crab Festival in Palatka. Simultaneously, our church was hosting a women's conference. Tina Blunt, which some of you ladies met a few weeks ago, was the keynote speaker. But Tina also had a young lady who was her assistant who traveled with her, who was also scheduled to speak. And her name was Katie Miller. And so these ladies show up at the church where I served. They show up to speak this conference. And I'm nowhere to be found because our youth group was out raising money for missionaries at this festival. And for time's sake, I'll spare you a lot of the details. But after that conference... My phone began to ring and receive messages. Members of my youth leadership team and our worship team and the lead pastor's wife were all reaching out to me to tell me that I had to meet this girl named Katie. And so I did what any normal person would do. I Facebook stalked her. And the more I searched, the more I couldn't believe it. I was like, this girl is not real. And if she is real, she wouldn't be interested in a guy who's been through all of the stuff that I've been through. So I did what any good youth pastor would do. I messaged her and invited her to speak at our youth group. (laughs) That speaking engagement never actually happened, but eventually a marriage engagement did. I'm grateful for that. It took from Memorial Day until August the 18th, 2011 for us to meet each other in person. Are you surprised I remember that date? We messaged back and forth a few times, and when I finally got up the courage to ask her to dinner, this was before ghosted was a thing, but she ghosted me. (laughs) She didn't respond for what felt like for weeks, and she said, my phone wouldn't receive messages. (laughs) And then she went to Africa for a month, and I felt like I was never going to meet this girl. Eventually, on that hot August night, we met at what was then downtown Disney for our first date. Here's the start of the point. (laughs) I was probably in love with her before we even met. I was passionately pursuing her. The night before we met, I was at a lock-in. If you don't know what that is, it's essentially when youth pastors tortured themselves by staying up all night with a bunch of middle schoolers and high schoolers. It's the worst. So I'm coming off of no sleep. I have to drive three hours one way to meet this possibly imaginary lady. For all I knew, I was being catfished. But then it happened. Dinner turned into a long walk in the rain under the umbrella so we could be close, which turned into a movie, which turned into more food, and that turned into being together for the past 12 years. For months, we did everything that we could do. Settle down, everybody. (laughs) we talked yesterday I was like I'm talking about her I said, she's like I want to tell my side of the story I was like fine come up she, her story's different and um, yeah. like she always criticized because I never seen her in person when we got out like we got there met her at downtown Disney do you want to come tell it yes. Katie. 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 Uh-huh. might as well come tell it so I just she want to Okay, but you have to keep this close to you.
1: I already feel so embarrassed. I'm like <laughs> blushing over here. Um, so we we meet like in the parking lot because you know downtown Disney's big. Um, and he has a gift bag for me, which was really sweet. He had asked my sister or somebody. Like, what my favorite things were. Like, favorite snacks, favorite drinks, favorite candies. Just, like, thoughtful, you know? It's a good first impression. Um, And so he gives me this gift bag. Like, he's like, here, I got this for you. It's your favorite things. And there's gum on the top. And he takes the gum out. He takes a piece of it for himself. (laughs) And then he puts it back. And I'm like, you just took the gift you gave me. Um, Also, when he first met me, he's like, wow, you're a lot taller than I thought you'd be. (laughs) And so he basically called me a giant. Um, But I knew he had the heart for the Lord and for ministry. And that's what drew us together. So he stuck with
0: me. She toned it down. That's good. so for months, we did everything we could do to spend time together. It was inconvenient. It was expensive. It was physically, physically exhausting. To go and see her was six hours round trip. But from August until the day that we were married two years later, we never missed seeing each other over a weekend. And eventually I moved to Bellevue. She moved to Lake Panasofsky about 30 minutes from here. And the rest is really history. Now, I know that was a long story. And honestly, it wasn't even that good. Big deal. We had a long distance relationship. The point is, is that we passionately pursued each other. I did most of the pursuing. But... I think it's, and I also think it's safe to say I got the better end of the deal. <laughs> but in Matthew 16, when Jesus says, if anyone wishes to come after me, that's, this is what he's referring to. To pursue or to follow or to go after. In romantic relationships, we have no problem doing things that seem stupid to those that are outside of the relationship. Staying up 36 hours, driving three hours to go on a date and then three hours home, no problem. Driving six hours round trip every time you see someone, no problem. Melting down every piece of gold jewelry you have, every piece that you own to be able to afford an engagement ring, no problem. But sadly, when it comes to the pursuit of Jesus, we have less stories and we certainly have less sacrifice. Unfortunately, our relationship with him is often more of a casual weekend thing. Okay, fine, follow Jesus. Just don't get too carried away with it. I'll go to church on Sunday sometimes. I'll throw a few bucks in the offering here and there. I'll volunteer to serve every now and then. But don't ask me to truly deny myself and please don't ask me to take up my cross. In Matthew 13, Jesus tells us what it should be like to pursue God's kingdom. Matthew 13, verse 44 says this, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he hid it again and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. In Bible times, people would often bury their savings in the ground. It was considered a safe place, especially during times of war or government upheaval. It would not have been uncommon for someone to bury their treasure or life savings in the ground and then be killed while away at war. Now, we don't know the exact specifics of this story, but Jesus tells of a scenario where a man is likely plowing the ground and comes across a buried treasure. We don't know exactly what was inside this treasure box, but we can rightly assume that it was worth a lot of money. Again, while we don't know all of the details surrounding the story that Jesus presented, what would you do? If you had just come across the largest sum of money that you would ever see, He reburied the treasure, and I imagine he nervously finished working his shift, and all through the day, he's probably daydreaming of all the things that he can do with that money. And he's planning and strategizing on how he's going to get it. And as soon as he's finished working, he begins to liquidate everything he owns, his house, his oxen, his cart, his plow. This treasure was so valuable that Jesus said, in his joy, the man sold everything he had in order to be able to purchase the property. He didn't just sell it, he was joy. About it. Jesus continues. Verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and he bought it. Now contrast these two stories with the story of the rich young ruler that we read a few weeks ago. The rich young ruler uh, approached Jesus and wanted to know how to get eternal life. And Jesus instructed the rich young ruler to sell everything he had and follow him. But he went away sad because he didn't view Jesus as more valuable than his wealth. But in these two parables that we just read today, Jesus describes what it should be like to pursue the kingdom of God. The man eagerly and joyfully sold everything he had They did it because they knew that they had found something that was of infinite value. But what about us? Who do we say that he is? Is he worth everything? So we often talk about giving God our talents, giving God our money, giving God our time, giving God our worship. And I think we unintentionally make it seem like God needs those things from us. But the truth is God doesn't need anything from anyone ever. We offer him our gifts, but he's the one who gave them to us to begin with. We offer him our money, but the Bible says he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. We offer him our time, but God is outside of time. We offer him our worship, but even if we did it, Jesus said the rocks would cry out in our place. The reason we talk about giving those things to God is that they are indicators of what's important in your heart. We've said this before. You can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. And when we come to a place that Jesus is above all and my love for him becomes more important than anything, then out of that flows my worship. But God doesn't need any of those things. What he really wants is us. What he really wants is you. Every part of you. What he desires is a deep, intimate relationship with you. There's an old story of an elderly missionary who had returned to America after 30 years on the mission field. After landing in California, he caught a bus that would take him to the Midwest to meet his daughter. And on the trip, the bus stopped in Las Vegas for the night. Never having been to Vegas and being out of the states for 30 years, he walked down the Vegas strips, the, the Vegas strip. He passed the lights and the hotels. He could hear the coins falling out of the slot machines. He could smell the amazing food that was being prepared to lure people inside the buildings. Eventually he went back to his hotel. He walked across his room, he opened the curtains and he knelt down and he prayed this prayer. God, I thank you that tonight I haven't seen anything I want more than you. Jesus desires intimate relationship with us. And while the messages the past weeks have been challenging. They've been a call to action, a call to reevaluate our walk and relationship with Jesus. But the truth is, Jesus exemplified this kind of love and sacrifice. He exemplified it first. John, the disciple of Jesus, who was the younger brother of James... They were fishermen and business owners turned Jesus followers. Peter, James, and John were part of the inner circle. John was one of the most trusted of all the disciples. He was the one tasked with taking care of Mary, the mother of Jesus, when Jesus died on the cross. He was affectionately nicknamed the disciple Jesus loved. That John sums it up well for us in 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. Jesus isn't asking us to do something he hasn't already done himself. Paul, the great first century missionary, was born in what would be modern day Turkey. He was once a persecutor of followers of Jesus. He was a well regarded Pharisee and had permission from the government to put to death anyone who was a part of this religious sect called the way, which would later be called Christianity. And after a dramatic encounter with Jesus himself, he became even more zealous for the work of Jesus than he was for his work as a persecutor of the church. Listen to his words in a letter that he wrote to believers in Rome, Romans chapter 5, verse 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. us. And then Jesus comes along and says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And we read these instructions from Jesus. We read them post crucifixion and resurrection. We already know the end of the story, but the disciples wouldn't have had the same reference point. This is why they often seem confused in their responses to things that Jesus has said. See, we have the benefit of the full picture. It's like watching a movie with a friend with a huge plot twist. You've already seen the movie, but your friend has not. And so naturally, the friend is confused until the movie is over. And so when Jesus said, take up your cross, the language would have been distasteful and possibly insulting. In Jesus' day, the cross was considered offensive. It was a symbol of shame and punishment. Crucifixion was a brutal method of execution used by the Roman Empire for the worst criminals. It was intended to be a public spectacle and a deterrent to others. The victims of crucifixion were often left exposed for extended periods of time. Their deaths were slow and agonizing. It was a form of execution that conveyed not only physical suffering but also social and moral degradation. So for the Jewish people in particular, the idea of being hung on a tree or crucified was seen as a curse. That belief was based on the Hebrew scriptures which says anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse, Deuteronomy 21, 23. So being hung on a cross was associated with those who were under the judgment of God. So in this interaction, Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And soon after he gives that call to action, he literally takes a physical cross and he carries it after being brutally beaten and tortured. The scriptures say that he was beaten so badly that he no longer looked like a human being. He was stripped of his clothes and chained to a post where they whipped him to the point of near death. The Roman practice of flogging or scourging involved a whip called a flagrum. The flagrum whip had multiple leather thongs with metal balls and sharp pieces of bone or metal embedded in them. Eyewitness accounts tell us that they ripped out his beard, that they spit on him. They blindfolded him. They punched him in the face and demanded that he prophesy and tell them who hit him. They struck him on the head with a staff. And then they fashioned a crown of thorns and pressed it deep into his skin. And then he carried his cross. He carried his cross until he couldn't physically continue. And there on the side of the road was a man named Simon. He was the father of two boys, one named Alexander and the other named Rufus. And the Roman soldiers forced Simon to carry the cross of Jesus up a hill called Golgotha. And there they nailed his hands and his feet to that cross. And there at the top of that hill, Jesus died. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus isn't asking us to do anything that he hasn't already done for us. He isn't asking us to do anything that he hasn't already exemplified. His invitation to us is to follow him. I recently heard a story of a pastor who went to some tribal areas of Africa and one night he was preaching to a crowd of a few dozen people and he presented the gospel and he made an invitation to follow Jesus and a couple of young men probably in their 20s accepted Christ and committed to follow him. The following afternoon the two young men showed up at the house where the pastor was staying they were each carrying a large bag over their shoulder. When the pastor asked the missionary what they were doing, he explained, these men will no longer be welcomed by their families or in their village. And then he said, they knew this would happen when they made the decision. They were choosing Jesus over their families. They were choosing Jesus over their comfort. They were choosing Jesus over their convenience. See, followers are willing to deny themselves and say, I choose Jesus. I choose Jesus over my family. I choose Jesus over my money. I choose Jesus over career goals. I choose Jesus over getting drunk. I choose Jesus over looking at porn. I choose Jesus over sexual promiscuity. I choose Jesus over what other people may think of me. I choose Jesus above all. Followers make the decision every day to deny themselves and choose Jesus even if it costs them everything. I don't want to really talk about the crucifixion story that much unless it's around Easter. I think we do ourselves a disservice by not contemplating the sacrifice that Jesus gave on our behalf because it was my sin that hung him on that cross it was your sin that hung him on that cross and the invitation of Jesus is is the same to us as it was to the early followers we've been talking about this for weeks now and I know that not everybody's gonna make that choice not everybody's gonna make that decision they didn't make that not everybody followed him then They chased him because of the miracles. They chased him because of the food. They chased him because of what Jesus could do for them. But the reward of serving Jesus is Jesus. There's a scripture, I think it's in Hebrews, where it says, He is our great reward. May my life be so emptied of my selfish desires that all I want is Him. And if it costs me persecution, then then all I want is him. We've become so complacent in our walk with Jesus. And I just, I told you a few weeks ago, I just can't do it anymore. I don't want to do it. I don't want to. I want him to have everything that I have, whatever I am. Whatever's in me that's not of him, I want him to take it. I want to follow Jesus I don't want to be a fan I don't want to be a spectator I don't want to sit on the pew I don't want to watch others follow Jesus I want to follow Jesus and my reward will be Jesus he's the reward and that's hard I think in our American culture team because we just we always not always but we've I have grown up. I won't put this on you and I won't make a blanket statement. I've been in circles and I've been around long enough now that a lot of times serving Jesus feels transactional come and serve Jesus and he will do this, this, and this. And Jesus, we sing about it. He brings healing and miracles and he does things for us and he provides for us and all of those things are true and I don't mean to dismiss them or make them feel like they're less significant than the other. But I'm saying that that's not the reason why we follow him. He is the reason. Jesus is the reason. What if I don't get those things? What if I don't get healed? Is Jesus enough? What if I do lose my car? Is Jesus enough? What if I can't pay the bills? Is Jesus enough? What if I lose my house? Is Jesus enough? What if I lose my child? God forbid. Is Jesus enough? What if I lose my wife? What if I lose my husband? What if I lose my whatever is most important to you? Is Jesus enough? And I don't know the answer to that question in my own life at times. Is Jesus enough? Without a trade, and there is a trade. Look again, I'm not trying to diminish that. He took my sin so that I could be righteous. He took my shame, which we were talking about earlier, so that I could be free. There is a great exchange that takes place. But I don't serve Him because of what He can do for me. I serve Him because He's God. There's a lot of people in the room that I don't know. I don't know if you have a relationship with Jesus or not. My prayer today was this. Was that if there are people in the room that are unsure, that today God would just touch your heart and say, today's the day I want to I surrender my life and I want to follow Jesus. There are others in the room. Maybe you've walked away from your relationship, but you've not been, you know, Maybe you were a follower at one time or another and now you're just kind of casually coasting. You put it on cruise control. You're just doing your thing. You're just living life. The invitation for you is to make Jesus the center of everything which we sang about a little while ago. And then there are others in the room who have thought they've been serving and following Jesus and maybe through this series you've come to the realization that maybe you haven't given him everything. Maybe there are parts of your life and parts of your heart that you've not surrendered to him and you feel the call and the prompting and the and the the touch from the lord to say i need to give those places up to come out of the darkness like i was talking about earlier to step out of that and so that shame and the guilt and all of the things can be released from my life cuz i step into the light i don't know what category you might fall into maybe none of them i don't know it's between you and the lord but I want to invite you to do this. If you need a touch from Jesus, or you'd like to surrender your life either for the first time or the hundredth time to the Lord, I would like to invite you to come down to this altar and we're going to pray together. We're not going to make a big spectacle out of anything. We're just going to say, Jesus, I surrender all. If that's you, you feel this, the nudging of the Holy Spirit, whether you've been serving God one day or a hundred years, I want to invite you out of your seat. join us at the front as we pray on behalf of pastor randy and the entire staff at everyday church we'd like to thank you for joining us today for more information on the church please visit us at everydaychurch.xyz